Have you ever been in an insignificant place filled with insignificant people? I felt that way when I was 13 years old, and my family moved to, to the fringes of Circleville, Ohio, near a, a tiny little village called Tarleton. Tarleton, Ohio, has about 300 people. Uh, there's one gas station with a tiny market inside, and attached to that gas station was one ice cream shop, one restaurant, and a post office and a fire department. But most of my memories of Tarleton were formed in the Tarleton Town Hall where I once took karate lessons. True story, so don't mess with me. <laughs> uh, I, I can't remember the name of my sensei, but I do remember my senpai. And uh, if you know anything about karate, you know that um, uh, a senpai is like an assistant sensei or perhaps... Uh, assistant to the sensei, if you're a fan of The Office. And for all of you fans of The Office, um, my senpai's name really was Dwight. Um, <laughs> it really was. And uh, I remember he was a, a very large man who always called us turkeys if we did something wrong. And I remember one particular lesson where we were being taught how to punch. And, uh, you know, I'm 13 years old, you know, I'm a homeschooler, and hadn't gotten in a lot of fistfights, you know, in the schoolyard, that sort of thing at that point. And so I was used to, when I made a fist, I'd have my, tum, my thumb inside here like this. And, and he would say, don't tuck your thumb in. You're going to break your thumb when you punch somebody. Don't do that. And I remember this lesson. He kept calling me a turkey because I kept getting it wrong. And I remember this little girl in the Tarleton Town Hall who was taking karate too. And we were doing some move, and I remember she just turns and looks at me and points and says, thumb tucked in, his thumb's tucked in. And I think that was my last time taking karate. So you can probably mess with me. I remember thinking, I remember thinking, this is an insignificant place filled with insignificant people. This place doesn't matter. I'm leaving. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you don't feel the way that I did about tiny towns and the people that live there. Maybe you feel that way about people and places with lower levels of education. Maybe you feel that way about people and places with lower economic levels. Or people in places with different political views. Maybe you feel that about people and places with different customs or traditions. Maybe it's just anybody that's different from you. If you've ever felt that way, if, you ever, if you've ever felt that a place was insignificant or a people was insignificant, this sermon is for you. Because in the kingdom of God, there are no insignificant places and there are no insignificant people. Why don't you turn your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, will be the text for today's sermon. And just to remind you of where we are, last Sunday, Sterling uh, did a wonderful job teaching us about Jesus' temptation by the devil. So while Jesus is being tempted by the devil, John the Baptist is continuing his ministry. But at some point, John, who's somewhat of a firebrand, 
upsets the authorities. He's preaching against some of the leaders of the day, and he gets arrested. He gets thrown in prison. And after John is arrested, Jesus begins his teaching ministry. And from the outset of Jesus' teaching ministry, from the very beginning, we're going to learn that there are no insignificant places and there are no insignificant people in the kingdom of God. Now, I believe that that sentence has the power to, to be like twin turbine engines for your soul. So I want you to be encouraged by what Jesus says and does in our text this morning. But before we dive into those twin truths, I, I want we, us to understand what we mean by the kingdom of God. So we said the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, there's no insignificant places, no insignificant people. Well, what is the kingdom of God? If you look at Matthew 4, verse 17, we see that Jesus begins by teaching about the kingdom of God. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These are the same words that John preached when John began his ministry. If you skip down to verse 23, the text says that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? The gospel, that word literally means good news. So good news about what? The kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So what is the kingdom? Uh, you're going to see it referenced 55 different times in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew talks about the kingdom more, <coughs> excuse me, more than any other New Testament author. He'll use different terms. He'll talk about the kingdom of God, or sometimes the New Testament will say kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of Christ, or just the kingdom. But this, this, this idea is referenced throughout the New Testament, especially the Gospels, and especially in the Gospel of Matthew. I just want to begin by giving you four simple truths about the kingdom of God. Four truths about the kingdom of God. The first is that God's kingdom is his sovereign rule. If you want a really simple definition of the kingdom of God, there it is. God's kingdom is his sovereign rule. He's in charge. He's the king. He's the boss. That's the kingdom in the simplest definition. So Psalm 103 verse 19 illustrates it this way. It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. We believe that there really is a God and he's really king and he's really ruling over everything. We really believe that. Now, if you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus or sometimes you struggle with what you believe about Jesus or the Bible, you might look at this world and say, okay, if God is king and his kingdom rules over all, then why is there so much suffering in this world. From the horrible things that happen in places like Haiti to the frustrating flat tire that you got on your way to work last week or, or an annoying cold that you can't seem to shake. Why do so many things seem wrong if God is king? Well, that's because humanity has established a rebel kingdom. 
There's a second truth. Humanity has established a rebel kingdom. You remember the story of the Bible. Adam and Eve are created by God to be kind of like, a vi- some, some people call them vice regents, like a king and a queen serving the high king, and their job is to spread his glory, to, uh, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion. Their job is to serve the high king. And we know what happens, don't we? Adam and Eve are in a garden paradise, and much like Satan said to Jesus, he comes to them and he says, did God really say? And in a garden paradise, Adam and Eve fail, and they sin, and they eat the fruit that God tells them not to eat. And as a result, in that simple act of disobedience, Adam sets up a rebel kingdom. That's what's happening. And as a result, every single one of us that come from the line of Adam, which is everybody, are sinners by nature and by choice. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. One of the best examples of what this rebel kingdom looks like is found in the book of Judges, uh, chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that not remind you of even our world today? A world in which everyone does what is right in their own eyes? Humanity has set up a rebel kingdom. The day is coming when the King of Kings, the Son of God, will return, and He will judge the kingdoms of this world. We saw that in Psalm 2 when we opened up the service. So if you understand that, if you see these truths, God is ruling the cosmos, and yet we set up rebel kingdoms, every single last one of us. The question is, is there hope for anybody? Yes, because truth number three, Jesus invites us to submit to God's kingdom now. That's, what, that's how he opens his preaching ministry. 417, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is saying the kingdom is here or it's at hand. Why? Because the king is here. Because I'm here, the kingdom is at hand. And listen, he's saying to his hearers, listen to me. If you will turn from your sin, you can submit to God's sovereign rule now. You can reject your rebel kingdom and you can follow me. We can joyfully submit to God's kingdom now when we repent and believe. Now, I, I love the way that this is explained in, in the song we've been singing the past few weeks called Good and Gracious King. I want you to listen to these lyrics. You might remember them if you've, if you've sang with us in the past few weeks. The song says, I approach the throne of glory, nothing in my hands I bring, but the promise of acceptance from a good and gracious king. I will give to you my burden as you give to me your strength. Come and fill me with your spirit as I sing to you this praise. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome, I lift my voice. 
To the king in need of nothing, empty-handed, I rejoice. I love those last lines. You can come to the king with empty hands, joyfully, because he is a king in need of nothing. He doesn't need anything. So what would you bring him? All he says is repent. In other words, turn to me. Come to me with empty hands. You know what? Come to me with your hands full of all your sin and all your suffering and give it to me and I will invite you in. There is hope. There is good news that rebels like you and rebels like me can become a part of the kingdom now when we turn to the king. Our final truth about the kingdom is that Jesus will return to consummate the kingdom. Now, what do we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done, thy kingdom what? Thy kingdom come. Well, we're saying kingdom, we want the kingdom to come. Well, if Jesus says the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is here, then why are we praying for it to come? Well, that's because we, we live in this world between the already and the not yet. So Jesus has come to inaugurate the kingdom, and, and, and already now the kingdom of God is breaking in to this world with all its sorrows and all of its suffering and all of its sin. And yet, the perfect realization of that kingdom awaits when Jesus returns to make all things new. So listen to the way John puts it in Revelation chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, the day is coming where there will be no more rebel kingdoms. No more. Not even in your own heart, Christian. No more rebel kingdoms. That temptation to do what you don't want to do will be gone, and all of it will be obedient to Christ. That day is coming. Until that day comes... Our job is to faithfully follow the king. Okay, so that's what we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God. The rule of God that's opposed to the rebel kingdom of humanity that we're invited into when we repent and that will be ultimately realized when Jesus returns. That's the kingdom of God. Now, in this kingdom, there are no insignificant places and there are no insignificant people. Let's take those truths one at a time. First of all, there are no insignificant places. Listen to Matthew 4, beginning of verse 12. Now, when, uh, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now we've seen this over and over again in Matthew's gospel, just in the first four, four chapters. But Matthew continues to connect the, the, the new story of Jesus with the old story of God's love for his covenant people. 
And he's doing that again. This time he takes us to Isaiah chapter 9. Even if you don't know this reference that Matthew quotes, you do know Isaiah 9 because we, we quote it a lot at Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, right? Isaiah 9, 6. A few verses before that, in verses 1 and 2, Isaiah says this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, now let me show you this on a map uh, just so you can conceptualize it a little bit. Uh, you'll see three arrows on that map, and uh, two of them are pointing to Zebulun and Naphtali. These are, of course, uh, two of the 12 tribes of Israel, and these are their territories that were allotted to them. And, and this is the region where Jesus is going to begin his ministry. And the third arrow is pointing to Capernaum, which is a small town just north of the Sea of Galilee. But as I was studying this, I kept wondering, why, why were Zebulun and Naphtali lands of gloom, anguish, contempt, and deep darkness? Why does Isaiah talk about this region that way? Why does Matthew talk about this region that way? Well, as you can see, this is part of the, the northern area of Israel. So this was part of the northern kingdom. And if you remember your Old Testament, uh, after Solomon died, Israel was split in the two kingdoms, the southern kingdom, which was the kingdom of Judah, and the northern kingdom. And the, the northern kingdom, from the very beginning, was almost founded on idolatry. Whereas in the southern kingdom, there were kings, not all of the kings, but many of the kings who followed God in the north idolatry was, was kind of part and parcel to the kingdom. Uh, beginning with Jeroboam, who said, I don't want my citizens to go down south to Jerusalem and go to the temple because then their affections might be turned to the southern kingdom. So I'm going to set up rival places of worship here. And that idolatry continued all throughout the northern kingdom, in areas like Zebulun and Naphtali. So if you want a picture of this, go back to our study in the book of Amos, preached against the, the northern kingdom, and there God rebukes the north for perverting justice, for a perversion of wealth, for a perversion of, of sexual intimacy, for a perversion of worship. Or go back to Hosea, also preached against the north. And you remember that God likens his people in the north to a prostitute that continually runs away from her husband. Well, the, the people in the north did not repent despite the, the preaching of the prophets. And in 722 BC, the Assyrian kingdom, you see Syria there in the northeast, the Assyrian empire came in and destroyed the northern kingdom. And we know from, from history and from the scriptures that part of the Assyrian strategy when they conquered a land was to pull out exiles, so pull out a lot of the, the well-loved and popular citizens, and transplant foreigners. 
So imagine here in Hampton Roads, if we were conquered by some enemy territory, if they took out half of the citizens of Hampton Roads and, and transplanted half of people from other countries, what would happen to whatever sense of identity we have in this region? It would quickly be gone, right? You would have no local identity anymore. And that was part of the Assyrian strategy. If we take away their sense of local community and identity, they won't revolt. And that's what happened in the northern kingdom. Things got so bad in Galilee that the people there forgot the Lord entirely. About, about 150 years before Jesus begins his ministry, before our passage here in Matthew chapter 4, we know from historical records that citizens of Galilee were basically forced to convert to Judaism by fellow Jews in the south. They had forgotten how to worship their God. They had abandoned him entirely. Now, here's why this matters. This is not the region where you would expect the Messiah to set up shop. You would expect him to pick somewhere better. Judah, perhaps. At least the people there worshiped at the temple. Herod had built a magnificent temple, and there were people there worshiping, and there were Sadducees, and there were Pharisees, and there were synagogues, and there was all these different things. There was a religious devotion in the south that was not present in Galilee, but Jesus chooses there. Why? Because I believe that Jesus wants us to understand that in the kingdom of God, there are no insignificant places. Last week, um, our family was in Washington, D.C. for a couple of days. And we got to walk around and, and see some of the impressive buildings there. We saw the, the White House. One of our kids tried to squeeze through the fence. So you can't do that. It's not allowed. Um, we saw the Capitol building. We, we saw the uh, you know, Library of Congress. We saw the Pentagon from the interstate. It's the closest we could get. And you see all these buildings with such significance. You think about the history that's happened in these places. You think about the decisions that are made in these places. And you're tempted to think, this is where the action is. I think if we're honest, all of us are tempted to think things like that. Can I tell you something, Christian follower of Jesus? What happens in this room every Sunday is more significant than what happens on Capitol Hill. Now, that's not because Pocosin Baptist Church is such an amazing place and we got it figured out, although I'm grateful that it is. We haven't got it all figured out, trust me. What happens in here is so significant because this is, is like an embassy for the kingdom of God. That's what a local church is. We're here to represent God's kingdom in the middle of another kingdom. And we, <coughs> excuse me, excuse me. Wow, that was rough. Um, we show the citizens of, of the kingdom of this world what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of Christ. 
And so what eternally matters is not what happens on Capitol Hill. It's what happens in local churches all across the world every single Sunday. Here's the question. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do we live like we believe that? Do we gather here with a sense of importance and excitement and joy that we might gather if we were invited to give testimony on Capitol Hill about a cause that mattered to us? Do we gather here with the faithfulness with which we make sure we tune in to figure out what happened in Washington last week? Do we really believe that this is a place where eternally significant things happen. By the way, um, I've already mentioned this, but it's, it's not just PBC. It's any place where the good news of the kingdom is preached. By the way, this is why we pray every Sunday for a church outside of these walls. A little church like Open Door Baptist Church that will probably never neither will PBC, but Open Door Baptist will never be on a list of, you know, fasting, fastest growing churches in America, or the most influential churches in America, or the, or the most well-known beloved pastors in America. These are not going to be these kind of churches, but we pray for them. Why? Because the king says, they belong to me. So they matter. This is why we pray for countries like Bulgaria. Bulgaria. What, what, what significant is happening in Bulgaria? God's people are there, and they're meeting there, and they're preaching the gospel. That's significant. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? This is why we, we, we take trips to tiny towns like Akambay, Mexico, or we send missionaries to hard places like Bertua, Cameroon. We, we, we care about little, seemingly insignificant places because they matter in the kingdom of God. And it's also true, Christian, of the places where you live, your life, your neighborhood matters. Your apartment complex is significant. Your home young mom where you're tempted to pull your hair out or the hairs of your children every week that place matters. It has significance. And the, and the work that you do there in your job, in your home, in your community, that has significance because there are no insignificant places in the kingdom of God. But also, there are no insignificant people. Look at Matthew 4, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee... Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
Now, I remember as a boy, sometimes hearing preachers say things like, you know, Jesus calls even dumb fishermen so he can call you too. I don't think that's a helpful way to think about what's happening in this story. These, these men, um, they had a very challenging, difficult job that required great skill to do what they did. Now, these were probably bilingual businessmen. They were either owners or heirs of family fishing businesses. We know from Peter's writing, we know from John's writing that these were, these were not kind of hillbillies as we're sometimes taught to think. These were men that they understood God's word. They are hardworking men. And yet, there is a sense in which they're not the likely guys you would pick, are they? Start with fishermen when Jesus could have gone and gone to a king like Herod and said, follow me. Could have gone to a, a Roman centurion and said, follow me. He could have gone to a Pharisee or a Sadducee and said, follow me. It's significant that the first, first four people that Jesus calls to himself as followers are four ordinary hardworking fishermen. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, one of the facts that stands out in the lives of all 12 apostles is how ordinary and unrefined they were when Jesus met them. All 12, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, were from Galilee. That whole region was predominantly rural, consisting of small towns and villages. It's People were not elite. They were not known for their education. They were the commonest of the common. They were fishermen and farmers. Such were the disciples as well. Christ deliberately passed over those who were aristocratic and influential and chose men mostly from the dregs of society. End quote. By the way, brother, sister, friend, this isn't just what Jesus did at the beginning of, the ministry, of his ministry. It's what he continues to do today. Uh, listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, who God calls to himself, the types of people that God calls to himself, ought to simultaneously crush some of our pride and give great hope to some of us that feel low. If you feel put together and, and intelligent and you've arrived and you're kind of there spiritually, if you feel exalted, Jesus comes and he calls you not because you've made it. So humble yourself, friend, brother, sister. Humble yourself. But if you think Jesus can't use you unless you're significant. Cheer up. Jesus makes you significant. I love the way John Piper puts this 
in his book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. He says, what is God looking for in the world? Assistance? No. The gospel is not a help-wanted ad. It is a help-available ad. God is not looking for people to work for him, but people who let him work mightily in and through them. God is not a scout looking for the first draft choices to help his team win. He is an unstoppable fullback ready to take the ball and run touchdowns for anyone who trusts him to win the game. That's good news, Christian. Listen to me. You were not called. You were not chosen. You were not drawn to faith in Jesus because Jesus needed you on his team, but because he loves you. That's incredible. That's incredible. That is enough to lift the heart of every weary saint. Now, we need to keep going because there's this other group of people coming to Jesus in verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, I want you to just see in this passage the affection and the kindness and the love of Jesus. Think about what we've already seen about this Jesus so far. He is a king. Kings or wise men from the east came to worship him. He is the one who is protected by the sovereign hand of God from Herod trying to kill him in Bethlehem. He is the one who goes to John the Baptist and willingly submits to that baptism to identify with us. And he hears God speak from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is the one who clenches his fist and walks with his hair wet into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he eats nothing, drinks nothing, and sins not once. Some of us can't do that for 40 minutes. He is the one who triumphantly walks out of the wilderness into Galilee, preaching the kingdom is here, and people come to him with demons and epilepsy and leprosy and blindness, and deafness, and with paralysis, and he heals them, he heals them. You see the kindness and the compassion of this Jesus. Let me ask you a question, Christian. Do you believe that he feels his heart is, is going out to people like that today? Do you believe that he feels that way for people like you today? 
When you feel downcast and afflicted, when you feel weak and sore, when you feel shameful and cut off from God, do you believe that he actually leans towards you, not away from you? Yet that's the consistent picture of Jesus we will see throughout the, this gospel. The people that Jesus kind of stiff arms, if you will, are the people that think they don't need him. But if you come to him with empty hands, or you come to him with your burden, he will not cast you out. That is glorious good news. There are no insignificant people. Everybody, everybody matters because they matter to Jesus. Now, I think it's interesting, Matthew 4.24, Matthew makes the point for us to notice that people throughout all Syria hear about this Jesus, and they come to be healed by him. Do we know who the Syrian people are? They're the people that captured the northern kingdom. They're Gentiles. They're the, the same ethnic group that when God told a prophet to go to a city and preach to them, he said, no. And God got him there anyway. Not by his own will, but by a whale or a great fish. Nineveh said, or Jonah said, I don't want to go to Nineveh. These are the Assyrian people, the Syrians. He doesn't want to go. Why? Because God will forgive them. And God did forgive them. And here we see at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, as Jesus is beginning his teaching ministry, he is caring for people that are outside of the covenant family of God. And he's inviting them in. By the way, people like you and people like me and I, I couldn't help as I was meditating on the passage this week to even think about another ethnic group of people that is coming, many already here, to this region. I've talked about them a lot here and there over the past few months, the Afghan people. The, the incredible reality that God is sending people here that missionaries could not go to reach. Think about that, sending them here. We couldn't go there if we wanted to, but God is sending them to us. Should our heart not be towards them the same way Jesus' heart was towards the Syrian people that came to him in Matthew chapter 4? Should it not be to welcome them, to love them, to care for them, to meet their needs if we're able? So I wonder, where do you find yourself in a relationship to this king, to this Jesus? Maybe you're in this room, you're not a follower of Jesus, and your, your struggle is that all you have to offer Jesus is a bunch of mess. Your life is a mess. You don't have a lot to offer. Maybe that's how you feel. Remember, he's the king in need of nothing. He doesn't need anything from you. So you are free to come to him with empty hands. Jonathan Edwards supposedly said that, that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's incredible. The only thing that you contribute is all your sin. Sorry, God, this is all I've got. I know, he knows. And he, he's joyfully 
saving sinners like you that will repent and turn to him. If you're a follower of Jesus, what about you? What, how are we to respond to a passage like this? Well, I think verse 19 of chapter 4 gives for us a helpful picture of what God wants from us. If you're a follower of Jesus, look at what he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. First, simply put, follow Jesus or keep following Jesus. Christians, a Christian is someone who follows Jesus. Not someone who says, I like Jesus. Not someone who says, I love Jesus. Not someone who got baptized once or joined a church one time or gave some money to Christian causes or walked down an aisle one time or prayed a prayer one time or signed a card one time. All those things are well and good in their own place. But that's not what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody that's following Jesus. So are you following Jesus? Parents, are you leading your children? Boys and girls, are you obeying your moms and dads? Husband, are you loving your wife? Wife, are you submitting to your husband? Employees, are you honoring your employers? PBC members, are you using your gifts to serve the church? Are you giving faithfully, serving sacrificially, spending time in God's word, in prayer? Are you forgiving those who sin against you? Are you welcoming those as Christ has welcomed you? Are you following Jesus? And if there are areas where you're not following Jesus as you should, that doesn't necessarily mean you're not a Christian. As we're going to see, the disciples aren't going to follow Jesus perfectly either. But what does it mean? It means that you need to turn. God shows you an area where you're not following him as you should, and you you turn. There's this great line in one of C.S. Lewis's stories where a character meets up with a, the lion Aslan who represents Christ and he talks about how the lion looks bigger than he used to. And Aslan says, as you grow, you will find that I look bigger too. So too it is with our, in our relationship with God. As you grow and your love for him, you'll see, wow, he's even bigger than I thought. And I have more junk in my life than I realized. And there's more stuff to confess. And Jesus says, keep following me. And notice what else he says. He says, I will make you fishers of men. So you follow Jesus and you help other people follow Jesus. I love that Jesus doesn't just immediately transform them into fishers of men. Like all of a sudden they they let go their nets and zappo, you know, they've been zapped with the superpower of all of a sudden now anybody will just follow Jesus. No, they stumble a lot on the way, don't they? Jesus says, I'm going to make you into this. Over time, you're going to grow into this. And that happens eventually, but it kind of takes a while. So too with you and me. But if you're following him, part of what's going to change in your heart is a desire to help other people follow him too. In the kingdom of God, there are no insignificant places and there are no insignificant people. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song 
that has fallen on hard times in some churches and some denominations. It's a song called, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. And it's fallen on hard times because some object to the lyrics and they say, well, God is the one who decides. We only follow him because he gives us the faith to follow. Well, that's, that's true, of course. Yes, we follow with the faith that we have been given by Jesus, but we must still decide to follow. Jesus comes up to Peter and Andrew and James and John, and he says, follow me. They give him the, or Jesus gives them the faith to follow, but they have to let go of the nets and take a step, and they do. And when they decided to follow Jesus, the cost they paid was great. They left behind their wealth, their possessions, their families, and eventually gave their lives to spread the good news of the kingdom. A similar cost was paid by the man whose life inspired this song. In the world's eyes, it's a story of an insignificant person in an insignificant place, but not in God's eyes. In the 1880s, a Welsh Christian went to India as a missionary. And he took seriously the call to follow Jesus and to make fishers of men. So seriously, he went to a really hard place with fierce opposition to the gospel of the kingdom. He went there, and after some time and effort, he eventually saw his first converts in a particularly brutal village in the Indian province of Assam. And he was overjoyed as he saw a, a husband, his wife, and their two children turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. But the village leaders, the village leaders were not happy at what had happened. And as is often the case in very hard to reach places, often it's not the missionaries whose lives are in jeopardy, but the converts. Kill the missionary and you raise up a movement. Kill the convert and you depress the missionary and he goes home. And so the tribal leaders decided to make an example out of the husband. They arrested his family. They demanded that the father renounce Christ or see his wife and children murdered. When he refused, his two children were put to death. Given another chance to recant, the man again refused, and his wife was killed. And still refusing to turn his back on Jesus, he followed his family into glory. Witnesses later went to this Welsh missionary and told him the story. And the report said that when they asked him to either recant or see his children executed, he said, supposedly, I have decided to follow Jesus, and there is no turning back. After seeing his children killed, he reportedly said, the world can be behind me, but the cross is still before me. And after seeing his wife put to death, he said, though no one is here to go with me, I will still follow Jesus. Listen to me, brother, sister. If Jesus is not the king and his kingdom is not at hand, then no sacrifice is worth it. But if he is the king, and if his kingdom is coming, then no sacrifice is too great. We can and should lay everything down to follow this king, 
Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news that we are welcomed into the kingdom, not by our own strength or good works or might, but by the good works on the cross of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you invite sinners to follow you. And it could be now in this moment you're inviting some sinner to, to follow you right now. Some sinner that thinks that their sin is too great, their suffering is, is too large, their past is too dark. Lord, you love to shine the light in dark, dreary, gloomy places. And you love to invite sinful, unlikely people to yourself. And so, Lord, if there is some sinner in this room that has not yet put their, put their, their old self to death and followed Jesus, they've not yet turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus, I pray that right now where they sit, they would turn. They would cry out to you and ask you to save them. They would put their faith in what Jesus did on the cross, not in their works, not in being good enough, not in turning over a new leaf, but in Jesus. Pray that right now you would do that in some soul today. And Father, for we who are your people, who find ourselves so often like Peter, wandering, saying things we shouldn't say, doing things we shouldn't do, not having the faith that we should have. Help us to take great comfort in the goodness of your gospel that completes the work that you start. You will make us fishers of men. And we might be kicking and screaming half the way there. But if we belong to you, you will not let us go and you will shape us to be good ambassadors for your kingdom. So do that work in our hearts, we pray right now. And may we be able to say and sing with joyful hearts that though none go with us, we will still follow. In Jesus' name, 